So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Amen. As I uh, mentioned in my email that went out, and I've had some good responses so far, uh, hope to be covering some topics uh, in the next few weeks before we get back into our study of Second Peter. Uh, from there, I hope to be going into either the book of Genesis or the book of Ephesians. We'll see which one pops up first, and then the book of Genesis, and then close out with the book of Revelation. It should be right around 25-25 at that point. And, uh, and I'll be ready for retirement. So that should be just about right. Uh, I have gotten a couple of, of great suggestions in terms of topics. Uh, this was one that came up uh, next week, God willing. I'm going to tell you who to vote for. So you want to be here for that. That'll be very exciting. And uh, I plan to, to come armed because I'm sure there will be uh, a, an armed rebellion. And then, uh, and then uh, shortly after that, we've got a couple other things that are coming up. So just a, a feel for where we are uh, right now. We opened here at 1 Corinthians 10.31, uh, a passage I know that uh, virtually everybody here is familiar with, and certainly a verse that trickles off our lips very easily, and yet uh, there's so much packed into it. I'm going to throw a ton at you this morning. So for those of you who don't ordinarily reference the notes, you might want to go back and do that by the time we're done. I realize this is going to be a lot of stuff, but I, you're a smart group, and I'm sure you can follow, and we'll be able to put it all together. As I said, no doubt virtually all Christians are familiar with this verse. It's out of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and it, it sounds good. You know, it's one of those just spiritual verses. This is great. But the statement itself does beg several questions when we try to think through what does that really mean and what are the implications for my life? Uh, you know, kind of how do I wash my car to the glory of God? You know, those types of things. Or if you're in a really bad job, how do I go and face that dragon of an employer uh, for the glory of God tomorrow? How do I do the things in life? How do I take this literally, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do to do all to the glory of God? Uh, I'm going to try and break that down and make it somewhat simple, but we're going to cover a lot of territory in the process. And actually, if you want to open your Bible to Exodus chapter 34, we're going to spend more time in Exodus 34 than any other place today. Uh, and we'll get there in a few moments, but then you won't be surprised. I think there are three essential questions we need to try and address in this regard, and it's what we're going to do uh, this morning. Uh, first of all, we need to ask the question, well, what is the glory of God? Uh, secondly, we need to ask, well, what does it mean to glorify God? And then thirdly, why is glorifying God so important? So those are the three questions we want to try and work through this morning and get to it. Something this week popped up. I'm going to be a real killjoy this morning, so just bear with me, okay? You'll understand where I'm coming from in a minute. Um, I, you've seen uh, many of the athletes at the Olympics after they were done, and I'm not faulting them for what they said. I'm just pointing out that sometimes our, our thinking can be a little bit uh, errant. And they've said, you know, 
I won this medal and I want to give God all the glory. And it's right to want to acknowledge God when those things happen. That is absolutely true. But what is kind of tacit underneath that is God's more glorified by my winning than by anybody else's losing. And there is this thought then that that somehow God's really interested in my sporting event and he's most glorified when I win. And that's not true. Just once, I would love to hear one athlete get up after they lost and say, I want to give God the glory for having lost this event and for the way that it helps work humility in my soul and for the privilege of being able to even compete. That might be a little more in line with with where I think Scripture takes us on this. It's a little bit like the Philippians passage, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and people write it on their sneakers like it means because of Jesus I can jump higher and run faster. Uh, Keds can make you jump higher and run faster, but not Jesus. He didn't die to make us sports people. He didn't die to make us successful. He died to save us from our sins. And when we confuse those categories, things get a little blurry and we begin to import things into it that aren't necessarily there. So let's let's go back. What is the glory of God? I'm going to give you my very reduced but I think biblically defensible definition of what the glory of God is, and it's this. It may be different than yours, but we're going to defend mine from the Bible. Uh, So I'm right, and I want to give God the glory for being right. Uh, That's where we're going this morning. It's this. Um, It is simply God revealed so that he is known for who and what he is. The glory of God is simply God revealed for who and what he is. Uh, Back in Exodus chapter 14, we're not going to go there right now. Let me give you some examples of this from Scripture to kind of build the case. In Exodus 14, uh, this was God talking to the children of Israel, to Moses specifically about when he's going to deliver the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And he says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, meaning the Israelites, And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And what does that look like? What will that glory look like? And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. I will be revealed for who I am to them through this event. Or Exodus 16.10. And as soon as this is after... um, after they're already out in the wilderness and God said that he would make his presence known among them. It says, and as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. What was that glory? It was simply his presence with them. He was revealing his presence with them. John 2.11 helps open that up a little more. Uh, This is when Jesus changed the water into wine at Cana of Galilee. This first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And what, what did that doing that sign do? It manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. It was revealing who he was. 
It was opening him up. In John 17, Jesus takes it even further. Jesus says in his prayer, I glorified you on earth. And how did he do that? Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Let me move on just uh, from that to uh, one more, if I've got it here. I'm not, no, I guess I'm, let me back that up. We'll come back to that in a second. In John 17, 1 through 5, it says that when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you have, so I want you to be revealed, but I want you to reveal who I am. Since you've given him authority, I want you to demonstrate who I am, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. Without a revelation of who and what he is, we can't be saved. We can't be saved by an imaginary view of God. John Owen once said this in one of his writings. He said, those who would content themselves with an imaginary God must content themselves with an imaginary salvation. Because of salvation, if eternal life is knowing the only true God, I need to know who that is. I've got to be accurate about this. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I've glorified you on the earth. How? Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Take off this veil so that I can be seen in all of my true resplendent person. Adam Clark was a great old Methodist commentator. And in his commentary on Genesis... He does something which is undoable. And that he, he says, let me try and give you a definition of God as best as I can. This is it. A general definition of this great first cause, as far as human words dare attempt one, may be thus given. The eternal, independent, and self-existent being... The being whose purposes and actions spring from himself without foreign motive or influence. He who is absolute in dominion, the most pure, the most simple, and most spiritual of all essences, infinitely benevolent, beneficent, true and holy, the cause of all being, the upholder of all things, infinitely happy because infinitely perfect, and eternally self-sufficient, needing nothing that he has made, illimitable in his immensity, inconceivable in his mode of existence, and indescribable in his essence, known fully only to himself, because an infinite mind can be fully apprehended only by itself. In a word, a being who from his infinite wisdom cannot err or be deceived, and who from his infinite goodness can do nothing but what is eternally just, right, and kind. Reader, such is the God of the Bible, but how widely different from the God of most human creeds and apprehensions. Yes. Is that your God? Have you thought about him 
that deeply at all? Or is he just some kind of a big guy up in the sky, a little detached? As George Carlin used to say, you know he's God because he's got the G on his pocket. He was first, so he got the best name. Is that, is that kind of the view? Or is there a real apprehension of the wonder of this being? See, that, that's what the glory of God is about. So glorifying God isn't making Him bigger or better than He actually is. It's simply letting others see Him for who He really already is. We don't have to make up things. God's glory is wrapped up in revealing His, His person so that you get a sense of His character and His attributes. God's glory is wrapped up in revealing His mind through His communications in His Word and in the revealing of His heart through His plans and purposes that He reveals in His Word. And that's why I want to take you to Exodus 34 because, or 33, because that's where we have this wonderful example that combines all three of them together. Let me see if I can get us there. Exodus 33. This is after Moses had gone up on the mountain the first time, had received the commandments, had taken the tablets back down, found the people sinning, and smashed them. And then he prays to God, and God says, because he wants to spare the people, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you've spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And so Moses said, if you're going to do that, then please show me your glory. And he said, God replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Now, let me just stop right there before we go too far. Why is it we can't see God and live? It isn't because there's something evil in that. It's simply because He is so overwhelming, so awful in His amazing wonder that no being can behold that without just being stripped of life. You don't just wander up to God. You don't, I'm sorry, I understand the sentiment. God isn't your co-pilot. He isn't your buddy. He is so extraordinary that if you were to see Him, you'd be consumed in a moment. That's God. And if we don't think of God in those terms, we will reduce Him. And, And the way we reduce Him is that we have this God in all of this majesty and expansiveness and wonder. And then when we say God hates sin, we make sin just so little. It's just a mistake. Really? Antithetical to that glory? And so we make sin small so that we then make God small. So God tells Moses this. I mean, this is big stuff. You can't see me and live. No, no, no man can see me and live. 
That's why he's veiled in Christ for us. And so the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And then I'll take away my hand and you'll see my back, but my face will not be seen. I can let you catch a glimpse of me. But Moses, if you could see me, you would cease to be. Is that your God? Because that's who God says he is. I mean, he's glorious. And so this takes place in Exodus 34, where I ask you to turn. This event actually then goes on and happens. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning. It tells you the tablets couldn't have been those big things that Charlton Heston had because he couldn't have cut those overnight by himself out of stone. You know, they were just, they were little things. About the size of a five by eight card. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and he went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone and the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So then he records what happened. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. This is God speaking. It's God revealing himself. And God says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Oh, please go to the next one. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Let's just go back and pull that apart for a few minutes. We won't take very long on it, but we need to look at each of these statements in its own First thing he wants you to know, first thing he wants Moses to know in revealing himself, in showing his glory, in proclaiming himself, is he is the Lord, the Lord. We've mentioned this many times before in Hebrew, especially in your Bible, especially when they were writing on scrolls originally, they didn't underline, they didn't put in quotations, they didn't bold, they had no fonts. Uh, So repetition was how emphasis was given. And so the first thing he does in revealing himself is make you know he is Lord. That he made everything. And that everything exists by him and for him. And therefore he writes the rules and all of creation revolves around his plan and his purposes. And he rules in his universe. He's Lord. He's not just a visitor in this universe. He is Lord of this universe. And if you're a Christian here today, he should be Lord of your life. Anything less isn't the God of the Bible. You're serving an idol if he is not Lord. It's amazing. This is is the revelation that he gives us 
so that we'll know who it is we're really dealing with. He is the Lord, the Lord, and then out of that, you would think out of this this vast, immense proclamation of His absolute Lordship over everything, the first thing He wants you to know too is that He's merciful. Merciful. I don't know that in trying to bolster my image in front of anybody else, my first thought would be that I'm merciful. But it's God's. He's compassionate. And this word mercy is used most often in acting to relieve the suffering of others, especially that suffering that's brought on by our own sin. He's merciful to us. And He is gracious, friendly. He smiles upon His own. He delights in and is friendly with humankind and specifically with the undeserving. That's what grace is all about. Have you ever... We went through a round of these just a little while ago. Um, I don't know if you're reading in the newspaper that President Obama had pardoned a whole bunch of people. And in... In giving those pardons, I saw people commenting, well, that person isn't worthy to be pardoned. If you're worthy to be pardoned, it isn't a pardon. You have to be unworthy. That's what makes it a pardon. That's, that's what makes the forgiveness of our sin so incredible. His, his grace to us is that we don't deserve it. Of course we don't deserve it. And fourth, slow to anger. Just like that wonderful word in the New Testament, macrothumia. It takes a lot to get God riled up. He's not perpetually grumpy or ticked off. He isn't walking around up there in heaven saying, straighten out those humans. That's where God lives. It takes a long time. How long? Sometimes long times. Remember when God appears to Abraham and says, I'm going to send your people into captivity for 400 years. And after that, they're going to come out and they're going to inhabit this land. But he tells him why it's going to take 400 years. He says, because the iniquity of the Amorites isn't yet full. I'm going to give those pagans 400 years or so in terms of repenting. They aren't even Jews. Because he's patient. And he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love. God's love isn't up and down like ours ours is at times. It's steady. It's loyal. And it's unfailing. One of the worst things people have ever done in raising their kids was to tell them, well, you know, if you don't do X, Y, or Z, God won't love you. Like, Like God is bought off by good works. This isn't the way His love works. And we can bring that into our adulthood later. And faithfulness. He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's he's truthful. He keeps His promises. He's trustworthy. He is always faithful to His own. And forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I know I've mentioned this to you before. There are, there's 12 words in Hebrew for sin. Each one of them has their own peculiar uh, nuances to it. And, and it helps us understand that sin is complex. 
and we need a Savior that can deal with every aspect of sin, he mentions three aspects of it here. When he reveals himself, uh, the, the most common and root ideas regarding sin. And so this is why his forgiveness is so complete. The first is the word iniquity. Iniquity has to do with our inner warpedness. That what's left over from the fall in Adam, that, that common warpedness that we share with him is iniquity. He forgives that. Now, he doesn't remove that when you get born again. You're still warped. I know you are. I, I see your Facebook pages. And I, and I know I'm still warped. We are. There's, there's still that, that twist in us that, that except grace keep us from it, we will run headlong into sin of all kinds. But he forgives that warpedness. And he forgives transgression, which is rebellion, which is saying, I'm not going to observe your law. He forgives that too. When it's purposeful. And he forgives sin, the normal word for sin, harmartia, which is missing the mark. As Romans 3.23 reminds us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does that have to do with the glory of God? Well, when we sin, we obscure the glory of God, that image that we were created in. And all of us have done that. We were made in his image to bear that image. And by sinning, we, we fall short of being able to make his character and his attributes known to others, which is why we're here. We obscure his image so we cease glorifying him. In every place and in every way, we fall short of the glory of God, the image which we were made to reflect. Last one. But who will by no means clear the guilty because he is holy and just he cannot simply dismiss sin well if he cannot clear the guilty then how can anyone be saved the answer is just this only if we're made not guilty how do you make a guilty person not guilty by imputing the righteousness of another to your account and we are then justified. Scripture uses the word. Declared righteous before the throne of God. God doesn't just forgive our sin. He goes beyond that and justifies us from our sin so that we are righteous in his eyes. You see, that last one has to bring us to the cross where righteousness and peace can finally kiss. Do you remember where it is in the Old Testament that the glory of God is most manifested during the the time of Israel's reign? It's in the tabernacle, in the temple, but specifically, it's over the mercy seat. That's where he says his glory is, in his mercy. Now, God graciously has pursued a number of means to make his glory known, uh, to reveal himself. He has done it in creation. And so we see in Psalm 19, 1 through 2, the heavens declare the glory of God. They tell us something about Him. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. We understand from from creation that, that God is immense and that He's infinite and that He's ordered and that He's eternal and that He's beautiful and that there's purpose in everything. God's revealing Himself in that. 
God has revealed himself in his word where he has spoken to us and revealing how he works and what his plans and purposes are. That's, that's what the Bible contains. What he did in creation and, and how he deals with sin and, and what he made humankind for and how his law reveals him and, and how his law reveals that we obscure him. How he's dealt with the sin problem the supreme revelation and the glorification of his mercy and grace in Christ. In his word, he's told us where everything's going, the book of Revelation. And he has manifested himself. We saw that in a couple of verses we already read, like in some of those opening quotations. And in the incarnation. Remember what it says in Hebrews. Let me move on. That, that Jesus was the express image of God. The radiance of what? Of his glory, shining him forth, and the exact imprint of his nature. And then lastly, he has revealed himself in us, in mankind, where we were created to bear that image and to make him known. All right, so that's the first question. What's the glory of God? Second one, these are shorter. All right, so you will get out of here before dinner. Um, what does it mean to glorify God? It means for, for us to make him known with as little distortion or veiling as possible. That's our job. To make God known to others with as little distortion or veiling as possible. Now I'm going to say, I think you would know this. It's obvious this can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. This can't just be done by human works. But, but we remember the human being is made in God's image. And as such, we are more uniquely privileged to glorify God than the highest angels in heaven. Everyone who knows Christ has this privilege. For we alone were made especially to perceive him for who and what he is, especially in that revelation that we just saw in Exodus, and to experience him and enjoy him in being the very objects and recipients of that mercy and grace that he so delights in. Those two hidden things that, that he delights in in the highest degree. We then can do this. We can glorify him a number of ways. But let's go back to the passage where he declared his own glory and start to reduce that a bit to ourselves in what was going on back in that initial passage. So let's go back to Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord. How do I glorify him in relationship to this? By living consciously under the authority of the one who made us for his purposes and not living for ourselves. Not worried about us in that sense. This is the great exchange that happens in, the, in Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Tell you what, he says, you worry about my stuff and I'll worry about yours. But what we do is we translate everything to, no, I just want you to worry about my stuff and, and I want to worry about my stuff. And he says, no, it's an exchange program. If you will worry about my kingdom, I'll worry about yours. And we say, well, sh when you really start worrying about my stuff, I'll, I'll start worrying about yours. He says, no, I'm already doing that. We, 
we live consciously as though he is the Lord. As though he's really Lord over the universe and really Lord of my own life. And, and life isn't ruled by fate or by chance or by human governments or by circumstances, but by this sovereign, holy, loving creator and God. Do I face life that way? If I don't, I cannot glorify him. This is why God was so upset with the Jews in the Old Testament. And then that's reiterated for us in the New Testament. Why grumbling is such a problem. This is why it's a sin. A sin? Yeah, yeah. Constant complaining and grumbling is a sin. Why? Because it says, God isn't Lord. Bad circumstances are Lord. My arthritis is Lord. The government is Lord. Because that's what really governs how I feel and how I look and how I interact with the world around me. No. No, I come back and say, I can't glorify him unless I'm living with him in that relationship in a, in a cognizant way. You know what it is about this life? <laughs> There's a Lord over this life and that Lord is my Savior. He loves me. Now, that doesn't mean I can't say ouch when somebody steps on my toe. Of course we do. It doesn't mean we can't be honest with pain and difficulty. But it, what it does mean is that there is an attitude of the heart and the mind that says in that, he's still Lord and I'm still his. And these things don't define life. They won't define, they won't rule the attitude of my heart and mind. Secondly, the Lord is merciful. I hit that twice. How do I glorify God in His mercy? Here's the fun one. By being compassionate and acting to relieve the suffering of others brought on by their own sin. Do I display His mercy? mercifulness do i make him known as a merciful god by the way i interact with people who need mercy or do i say it's god's job to be merciful and my god my job to judge so easy to to leave these behind you see this is this is this is how you can glorify god while you're changing dirty diapers be merciful to that stinky little critter. It's not its fault that it messed that diaper. But even if it was, it still needs mercy. Merciful to your kids. Merciful to your spouse. Merciful to your boss. Merciful to your parents. Mercy. How do I live for His glory? I begin to display His attributes by the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. Gracious. Displaying God's friendly attitude toward humankind and others who, like we, are undeserving by our own attitude. Being gracious to the undeserving. I'd be gracious to Him if He'd earned it. Well, then that isn't grace. 
It isn't grace until they don't deserve it. God, make us gracious. You, you read many political blogs right now? You hear a gracious word from anybody? On any side? No, and guess what? Beings made in the image of God, made to reflect His glory, we have become so ungracious and so violent and so biting and so visceral. We can't display Him. Slow to anger. Being those who like Him, it takes a lot to get riled up. If he's not perpetually grumpy and ticked off, then we aren't supposed to be either. Else, how can we display him? How can we make him known? And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Not up and down in our love for those around us. In our relationships with him and with others. And... and, Isn't it true that those relationships, our love doesn't tend to be very steadfast with him or them, but loyal and committed and then in faithfulness and truthful and keeping our promises and trustworthy so that those around us experience that. Our neighbors dwell with us in safety because we're faithful. And forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God, please make me more like Jesus. Just don't give me anybody I have to forgive. At least nothing too severe that I have to forgive. Well, those are contrary prayers. How do I display Him? By forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, these aren't one-time acts, are they? They're, they're a lifestyle of living in a way that reveals the wonder of our God. And, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Aware then of our own accountability before God and seeking justice and equity in the, in the society around us. Do we seek justice and equity for others or only for ourselves? As we live in relationship like this with God and then endeavor to employ and display those same attributes to those we interact with. That's how we, we live to His glory. This plays out, I think, in the following four main ways so I can reduce what we've looked at here um, very quickly. The first is in, back that up, declaration, in communicating God's word when we teach and preach and, and even in our conversation. You saw in John 16, Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all the truth for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he'll declare to you the things that are to come. And so, what will he do? He will glorify me. How? For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. How do we glorify him? By taking what is his and declaring it to others. All that the Father has is mine. And therefore I said he will 
take what is mine and declare it to you. And we do it in worship. And so in Psalm 86, 12, I I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. See, in worship, we glorify him. We make him known by the things we say and declare in our worship. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You've delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. We do it in vindication. In Joshua 7.19, you'll remember the incident with, with Achan when he had stolen the, the wedge of gold and the Babylonish garment when they conquered Jericho. And then later, he, he never confesses. He only admits to his sin. There's a big difference between the two. But when he's finally caught, Joshua says to him, My son, give the glory to the Lord God of Israel. And give praise to him and tell me now what you have done and don't hide it from me. Let God be shown for who he is. Because he said, don't do this and you've done it. Israel's defeat in the face of her enemies makes it look like it's God who's not faithful to his promise. That's what comes on the heels of this. Clear God of the charge and establish his righteousness and and let him be seen as glorious by owning your sin. In the gospel, God is vindicated. Men show by their confession of sin that God is the good one and they are not. We are not. And his righteousness then is revealed. We justify him and by grace he justifies us. And lastly, in obedience. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. When we walk as people who belong to the kingdom of Christ... Now note, God doesn't need to be apologized for or tamed to make him easier for people to reckon with. The more Jesus is revealed in revealed the Father in the New Testament, the more people were offended by him. Giving God the glory, and I, I'm sorry I need to say this, but I do, only because I've, I've experienced this sin personally. Giving God glory never includes lying about him or trying to give false testimony. You don't have to say he did something that he didn't do. That doesn't give him glory. Truthfulness gives him glory. He's glorious enough as he is, and he never needs us to use our sanctified imaginations, making things into miracles that aren't, or making his interventions seem more spectacular than they are. He doesn't need false press. He just needs to be revealed for who he is. He doesn't need our help that way. He just needs to be known for who and what he really is and really does. Nothing less and certainly nothing more. I might add, that's why we need to be extremely careful not to put words in God's mouth or attitudes in his heart. We, we have to be very sure that when we say, God said, it's God who said it. And if I can't verify that in his word, then what I'm doing is robbing him of glory. Because I'm misrepresenting him. I'm obscuring who he really is. Anything else is the very opposite of glorifying him because it obscures the truth. It's, it's why preachers and teachers need to be so careful when we exegete God's word. We don't want to make it say what it doesn't say. And we, and we don't want to leave anything out that it does say. And we don't want to use it as a pretext to communicate what we want to say. 
We can't bend the word to serve our purposes, nor simply say what we feel about it. That doesn't help a soul. What did God say through the writers to the people he was speaking to at the time? That glorifies him because it reveals him. So that's our third one then. Why is glorifying God so important? So we'll close here. I'm almost done. Hang in there. You've been very good, very quiet. I know you've got things in your lap that you're ready to throw, but bear with me just a few more minutes. Why is this so important? Just a couple of reasons. First, there's a biblical mandate, which is our text today. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the biblical mandate. So the the first reason why it's important is because he said do it. The second reason why it's so important is because it is what we were created and redeemed for. Let me go to Ephesians 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, to the revealing of him in our redemption. And then in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, we spent time on this weeks ago. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. To do what? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Takes us back to Genesis 1, doesn't it? In Genesis 1, 26... God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And you go to that passage we were in Exodus and find out what that image looks like. And third... Because it's God's means to God's end. Let me show it to you in Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, restoring that image in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then that takes us to Ephesians 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. For what reason? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. May take up full residence and possession. And that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How do I help my brother and sister in Christ grow to the fullness of God by him being revealed, glorified in me? The process, he tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, you see, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord As we behold that glory, 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As we portray the wonders of God to each other, we grow from that. It's symbiotic. It's an extraordinary blessing. And it's why Paul locates the focus of his own preaching and teaching and ministry in this very thing. In 1 Corinthians 2, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I need you to know Him. The singular aim to preach Christ and Him crucified is to preach the love of God for the lost. It's to preach the epitome of God's self-revelation in the giving of mercy to the guilty and blessing to the undeserving. His mercy and grace. But fourth, and we'll close here. Why is it so important? Because it is the highest act of love of which you and I are capable. What can possibly be better in blessing others than being the conduit through which they are exposed to the fountain of all good. To the very ultimate of all blessing and good. God himself is revealed in his mercy and grace in Christ Jesus. So, what exactly is the glory of God? Who and what he is. And what does it mean to glorify God? To make him known for who and what he is and why is glorifying God so important because he's worthy because it's why we're created because it's the highest act of love toward him and of others of which we're capable wow we get to do that (laughs) we get to do that that's the call what does it mean to glorify God well it doesn't mean to put a bible verse on your sneaker There's nothing wrong with putting a Bible verse on your sneaker. It's perfectly great. It's always good to remind yourself. Sky and I were watching a movie the other night, and and the, the one guy in the movie was a rabbi, and he was wrapping his phylactery around his arm, which was a long piece of leather with Scripture written on it, and they would wrap it around their arms so they could read it and remind themselves of it. Know it. Those are good things. But that isn't essentially glorifying God. No, glorifying God is in revealing Him. And when we begin to reveal Him through the Spirit-wrought character of Christ in us, man, extraordinary things are done. Wouldn't it be great if when we got together, we thought, how can I display something of those things that I've just seen in Exodus 34 to the other people in this congregation? Oh, no, no, let me take it home. How can I, how can my wife experience some of those things through me? How can my husband experience some of those things through me? How can my kids, how can my parents, how can my evil boss, Snidely Whiplash, experience some of this through me so that the glory of God is lived out, carried out, displayed in the earth. What 
an enormous privilege and calling that is. What a, what a high thing. If you were to look at your life, your being, as a totally black sheet, absolutely black, totally dense, black. But there's the brightest light imaginable right behind you. One pinprick lets that light shine unbelievably. That's glorifying Him. And the more pinpricks, the more places where I'm out of the way, He gets to be seen. Others are blessed and He's honored. And the world is met by the wonder of the revelation of the glory of the living God. I want to live like that. Oh, I want to live like that. I hope you do too. Let's pray. Father, these are high things. Um, and I fall so short. I forget that you are Lord of this world and I forget that you're Lord of my life and I try to live on my own and I tremble at the world as though you're not really Lord forgive me forgive me when I am not merciful when you have been so merciful beyond all comprehension. Forgive me, Lord, when I am not gracious to the undeserving, when I deserved nothing but an eternal hell and you have promised me heaven. Forgive me, Father, for being so stingy with forgiveness when you have been so lavish with it. That you are abounding in steadfast love and my love is up and down toward you and toward others. You are absolutely faithful to your promises and I am fickle in mine. Oh God, forgive me. Cleanse me from those things. From from wanting to crush other people at any time. Oh, work in me by your Spirit the sweetness and the wonder and the joy that is truly who you are. And let me be a means whereby that can spill over to others. You have blessed me and blessed me and blessed me with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. And I want that to overflow to others. 
Make us as a church a beacon of that great light of your glory in this community. As a people, Lord, may we learn to minister your beauties to one another as a, as a constant lifestyle that Christ might be seen, that Christ might be glorified, might be honored, might be revealed in our words, in our attitudes, in our actions, in our purposes, in our pursuits, in our everyday lives. Until that day when He comes again and all things are subsumed under the direct revelation of His glory. Work in us to that end, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand and sing with me, please? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy dismissed. As I said, next